Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Attila Hertelendi. He is an associate professor in the College of Business and has a secondary appointment at the Wertheim College of Medicine at Florida International University in Miami. He is also an adjunct associate professor in the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University and director of the Middle East Hub for the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. His research explores the health implications of climate change and the role leaders play in determining organizational effectiveness and resiliency during disasters and crisis events. Dr. Hertelende is associate editor of the Journal of Emergency Management, co-editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Emergency Services, and deputy editor of Disaster Medicine and Public Health. And he's on the editorial board of the Journal of Climate Change and Health. In addition, he is the research director for the Disaster Medicine Fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hertelende also will be co-presenting the session, Leadership for Cost-Saving, Climate Smart, and Quality Healthcare at ACHE's New York City Cluster, which takes place August 7th through the 10th. He'll be presenting with Dr. Cecilia Sorensen, Associate Professor and Director of the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education at Columbia University. They'll share how healthcare leaders can deploy cost-saving and quality improvement solutions in their healthcare systems now. Register for the cluster today at ACHE.org slash New York. All right, let's hear more about Dr. Hertelende and get a little preview of his session. Welcome to Healthcare Executive Podcast. How are you, doctor? Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. So first, let's talk a little bit about your career. Uh, like we like to ask all of our guests, how did you get involved in healthcare and how did emergency management really become an area of interest to you? Sure. So I got uh, my start in healthcare at a young age. Uh, I started actually as a lifeguard and uh, and from there became a paramedic and a firefighter. And uh, from there, made a natural kind of progression into uh, healthcare administration. Where I ran emergency departments and under that umbrella was always EMS. Um, and then you got disaster added to your portfolio of uh, responsibilities, and I kind of moved my way up into uh, into senior executive roles, uh, both in the U.S., uh, Canada, uh, and internationally in uh, in Saudi Arabia, and also in uh, in Dubai. And so I've always had that uh, portfolio of disaster and emergency management. Um, since I had that expertise, I could always bring that. Uh, to the table. Uh, and so that's kind of my healthcare journey in a nutshell. So we haven't talked too much about disaster and crisis management on this podcast. So excited to have you here today. Let's talk about how disaster and crisis management has evolved during your involvement research in these areas. And really, what are leaders doing differently today than they may have been doing a few decades ago? That's a great question. So, you know, this has really evolved, uh, you know, quite a bit over the years. It's really been driven by the need to respond effectively and also, you know, the increasing frequency and complexity of disasters that we see right now worldwide has really, um, we, we actually have find some changes here in, in, in several key ways that the field has evolved along with really the changes in the leadership approaches. So first of all, the emphasis on preparedness. You know, there's been a really a shift towards proactive preparedness measures 
rather than purely reactive responsive efforts. Uh, leaders are now prioritizing risk assessment, scenario planning. We've really been focusing on comprehensive emergency preparedness strategies. I remember doing an ACHE session at Congress, and we had maybe, you know, 15 people show up to talk about disasters as far as members. And it really wasn't on the radar. It really wasn't that, it really wasn't considered as as, as a core function of business or things that need to be uh, thought of. It was always someone else's responsibility at the, in the basement that did something with risk. And that has really completely changed. Now, the last time we did this session last year with uh, with Dr. Mike Mayo, uh, who's the president and CEO of uh, Baptist uh, uh, Health Systems in Jacksonville, and who was also former governor, we got a lot of people's attention. We had CEOs coming. And so they're now really thinking about this. The other things in terms of preparedness is that we have early warning systems We're conducting these drills and exercises. CEOs are now on board with this and um, really uh, showing leadership in terms of the drills and exercises and being there. At BIDMC, we're really, really focused on that at Harvard uh, in terms of the emergency management uh, function as it relates to clinicians and making sure that clinicians and leaders are kind of on board with this and making sure that everyone's uh, aligned. So we have good communication networks as well. The other things that have changed is, of course, technology and data integration. Uh, the advances in technology are amazing. They're en enabling leaders to have real-time data. This has really revolutionized uh, disaster and crisis management. Leaders now are being able to uh, leverage tools like uh, GIS, the geographic information system, satellite imagery, social media analytics. Uh, and also machine learning to enhance situational awareness. One of our colleagues, uh, John Corris, for example, who runs uh, Tampa General, they've implemented the GE Command Center, and they've got a really great um, visual. They have a really good situational awareness of what's going on with their patients at all times, anywhere in the hospital, really anywhere in the system. So, uh, so some organizations have really, really taken advantage of of uh, improving the situational awareness, the decision-making and resource allocation opportunities. So this gives us an opportunity to really focus uh, for targeted response, targeted responses, and also enables it to be faster and, and just better coordinated. Speaking of co uh, coordination and collaboration, we have better interagency and cross-sector uh, collaboration. So leaders are now recognizing the importance of collaborations gained uh, across agencies, sectors, and disciplines in managing disasters and crises more effectively. So they're actively fostering these uh, partnerships between government entities, non-governmental um, organizations, these NGOs, private sector organizations, and local communities. The pandemic has taught us this, and previous disasters have taught us that you really kind of have to rely on yourselves in terms of healthcare organizations. You can't expect federal resources you know, or, or somebody else to show up to manage your hospital, to manage your incident, or to manage your crisis. So uh, organizations, you know, healthcare leaders have really uh, turned more inward now to be able to create those uh, cross-sector partnerships so that they can be more resilient. And that collaboration really promotes that resource sharing, that mutual aid, if you will, knowledge exchange, coordination among, amongst uh, stakeholders. The community engagement and empowerment is also really key. Now leaders are really placing a lot of focus on involving the local communities in, the, uh, in disaster and crisis management, recognizing that these communities 
really possess valuable knowledge and resources, and the leaders are really looking to empower them through participatory planning, uh, training, and of course, information sharing. So this really promotes that resilience of the community, enables the communities to take an active role in their own recovery if they have a, you know, a tornado or some, uh, some other event, hurricane or so forth, or wildfires. And then another key thing that has really emerged, which is uh, somewhat nascent. It was discussed before, but it really wasn't come to the. It really hadn't come to the forefront until until really the pandemic. So there's that aspect of psycho psychological and social support. Uh, so there's growing recognition of the psychological and social uh, impacts of disasters and crisis, and leaders now are increasingly integrating mental health and psychosocial support services into the response and to the recovery efforts. It's really part of the planning. It's part of the uh, training, part of the exercises. It's provide, you know, they provide the, that counseling, that peer support, community resilience to help people to cope with the trauma and to rebuild their lives. So these are some, you know, some key areas that have changed. Also, of course, there's a couple other things to share uh, in that adaptability and flexibility. So my research, most recently a paper that we published on, on CIO, lessons learned during the pandemic, uh, chief information officers in specific, we learned about the aspect of their adaptability, their flexibility in terms of what leaders now are able to do. They understand the importance of that, that it's a dynamic, it's an uncertain situation, it's non-scripted, it requires them to promote agile decision-making, flexible response frameworks, the ability to adjust their strategies based on the evolving circumstances. That's going to be key, a key factor going forward for the foreseeable future as, as many organizations are now facing what we call kind of a permacrisis. So these leaders now are being, are being tasked with that ability to respond effectively to emergent challenges and changing needs uh, as, as these crises develop and, and they change, uh, just like we've seen here with, in New York City with the, uh, with the wildfire smoke. Uh, who would have expected that? So that's uh, really why people need to be agile and, and flexible. Let me and ask then, you about that, the, if you don't mind me cutting sure, in there, ahead, just please. the wildfires. You just brought them up. So U.S. and Canada uh, definitely having an impact around this conversation. We'd be talking about climate change. So what advice do you have for healthcare leaders um, who are having these conversations with very concerned members of their community as these things are unfolding, as you just described? That's a great question. So when they, you know, when they engage in these conversations about the impact of wildfires and climate change, uh, they need to approach this topic with with a great deal of empathy, factual information, and really focus on actionable solutions. So here's a couple of things that they might want to consider. One is to be knowledgeable. You know, education is key. There's a lot of literature that's been coming out recently. Some great studies by my colleagues on wildfires, on heat emergencies, that connection between wildfires and, and climate change. Understanding the scientific consensus and available data. Looking at the current research and reports from reputable sources, uh, which will help to you know, provide accurate information and address concerns effectively. So that's number one. Number two, empathize and listen to the community. Understand that the community is expressing these concerns may have that personal experience or fears related to wildfires and, and climate change. And it's really real when it's one of your family members. So, for example, my parents live in uh, British Columbia in Canada. And, um, it, you know, during the wildfire season two years ago, they had, you know, major wildfires uh, in, in the Kelowna area and COVID. 
And so the question is, where do people go? Like, mm -hmm. you can't, like, escape from that. And mm -hmm. so same thing when you have, like, wildfire smoke, you know, enveloping all of New York City. Like, where do you go? So you really need to be able to uh, relate to the people practicing active listening, acknowledging their concerns, showing empathy by validating their emotions, demonstrating they generally care about their well-being. It's a really big deal because people don't really know where to go. They don't know what to do. And they're relying on you know, on that expertise on, on what they should do. Uh, and especially when it comes to family members as well, they need to communicate those health risks to clearly articulate the health risks associated with wildfires and the broader impacts uh, of climate change on public health. That's a really key thing right now. Exactly what you're, are you supposed to wear a mask? Are you supposed, you know, what kind of mask, mm -hmm. how long are you supposed to stay indoors? All these different things. You need to explain how smoke inhalation, air pollution, psychological effects of the disaster events can cause, you know, a, a pretty significant issue as it relates to individuals' physical and mental wealth, uh, mental well-being. So they need to use the local data case studies uh, to make the conversation more relatable to the community. And this kind of goes into that preparation and actual response phase as well. I encourage also connecting the dots, you know, helping the community members to understand the linkages between climate change, wildfires, public health, how these rising temperatures, these prolonged droughts in many uh, parts of the country and parts of the world, you know, changes the precipitation patterns and they contribute to, of course, wildfire risk how they are highlighting, you know, leaders can also highlight the importance of addressing climate change to mitigate the severity and frequency of wildfires. This will also help, you know, public health in the long run, particularly in wildfire prone areas. This is it's not just a one-time event. We're seeing this happen over and over again now uh, and becoming more and more significant. In fact, we saw in Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau had mentioned that it's this was the worst wildfire season on record. So again, those things have to be, uh, those kinds of statements need to be correlated to facts and make sure that things are accurate. They can also, uh, leaders can also, you know, highlight local initiatives, you know, showcasing how local healthcare organizations and communities, community programs that are actively working to address climate change and its health impacts are being done right now. They can share success stories, what they've done in the past, learning from these collaborative efforts, you know, through our consortium that we have, our global consortium on, on climate change, health and education. We have a resource at Columbia that really can, healthcare leaders can tap into in terms of learning some of those success stories, those collaborative initiatives that have already gone on, how some communities have built res resilience and re reduced their vulnerability wildfires. These can really inspire the community to take, to get involved and to, of course, to take uh, action. I think there's also a role for advocacy for policy change as well, by empowering the community members and emphasizing that importance of collective action and advocacy they can engage in discussion with local and regional policymakers, urging them to really prioritize the climate change mitigation efforts, investing in clean energy, and policies that promote environmental st uh, st sustainability. Uh, they can all be done. Uh, they can provide those resources and guidance on effective ways to engage in these adv advocacy efforts. So those leaders can really take a role in that. So, you know, these conversations might involve emotions on various different perspectives. So it's really key to, people can get really excited about this, right? We see that people can, uh, uh, sometimes these conversations can go 
uh, in a different direction than leaders had anticipated. So it's key to uh, remain respectful, non-judgmental non approach, allowing individuals to really express their concerns and their opinions openly. People get really frustrated with their inability to do something, particularly when it comes to wildfires, right? So you feel really, really helpless. Where do you go? What do you do? It affects everybody. doesn't matter who you are. Again, going back to that aspect of providing accurate information, practical solutions, a very supportive environment, so healthcare leaders can really make a, a, a change there or, or make a, they can play a really vital role in raising the awareness, fostering that community resilience, uh, and I think that will go a long ways. Well, let's let's look ahead a little bit. Let's talk about your session, your upcoming session at the New York City Cluster. You're going to be focusing on resilient and sustainable healthcare delivery. And so without giving too much away here, what are a couple of ways that healthcare organizations can provide care, but also operate in a way that reduces their carbon footprint? Yeah, they can really, they can help the organizations can really do a number of different things. So let's kind of break these down. Uh, these are some simple solutions, and we're going to talk about these, um, and they vary in terms of cost, in terms of the amount of in, uh, energy invested sure. in these uh, from a from a staffing perspective. But let's look at energy efficiency and renewable energy. First of all, you know, healthcare facilities consume a significant amount of energy by implementing energy efficient practices. They can reduce their carbon emissions there. Some measures include, you know, basic things, uh, easy things here, energy audits and upgrades, conducting energy audits to identify areas of energy waste, implementing things such as LED lighting, efficient HVAC, insulation improvements, these are kind of low-hanging fruit, renewable energy sources, investing in, you know, renewable energy sources such as solar panels, wind turbines, uh, to generate clean energy on site. Uh, so that will help reduce uh, the reliance of fossil fuel-based electricity. Some organizations, you know, have a jumpstart on that already. Smart Building technologies, most new builds are already incorporating this. Uh, occupancy sensors, for example, automated lighting systems, energy management systems to optimize energy usage, for example. Um, another key area and big areas in waste management recycling. Again, healthcare facilities generate a large amount of waste, including medical hazards, general waste, all that type of thing. Implementing these waste management practices can really help minimize the environmental impact you know, having uh, robust recycling programs, establishing these comprehensive re recycling programs, uh, waste reduction segregation, implementing these strategies to reduce waste uh, generation, such as digital record keeping, use using re reusable or recyclable materials, proper segregation of waste streams, all those types of things. It's very interesting. We can actually learn quite a bit uh, overseas where... Yeah, uh, some healthcare systems are are really implementing these things. Uh, I just came back from Australia and New Zealand on vacation, and I seen, uh, you know, a lot of uh, you know focus on not using plastic bottles. Uh, people are encouraged to bring their own kind of bottles to work, and and they have refill refill stations, and that's just you know being implemented in a lot of public places. Pretty cool thing to see. And then we can look at also waste, you know, hazardous waste handling, making sure that, you know, handling storage of, the, of hazardous waste materials, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and sharps are all, all taken care of these kind of basic things. Sustainable procurement. Now, that's another area 
They can make environmentally conscious uh, choices uh, when procuring specific supplies of pharmaceuticals and so forth, uh, looking at environmentally friendly products, prioritizing these these products, and, and in terms of their supply chain, they have a lower environmental impact, you know, things that are made from recyclable materials, so they're eco-friendly. Another key area is, uh, we're going to talk about a sustainable food practices, encouraging the procurement of locally sourced, organic, sustainable uh, produced food for both patient meals and cafeterias, uh, reducing that food waste and implementing composting programs. These can all contribute to sustainability. And another area, well, sometimes a little bit more difficult, uh, really takes some thought planning, uh, but involving the community, involving the, the, the organization to tackle transportation and logistics. Uh, healthcare organizations can really take these steps to reduce carbon emissions with transportation and, and logistics, looking at green fleet management, for example, implementing you know practices that promote fuel efficiency, reducing emissions, such as using hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, here's a key that I've, we've seen oftentimes a lot of waste, in, in, and that is in optimizing routes, encouraging carpooling or public transportation uh, for staff is another key area, again, stealing from colleagues from uh, other areas around the world where we see a lot of carpooling. We saw a lot of public transportation, Australia, New Zealand, good examples, uh, the UK, that kind of transcends also into telehealth and remote care. So expanding telehealth services, remote care options to reduce the need for patients to come to the hospital, uh, you know, we've been talking about that from the broader perspective of healthcare management anyways, in terms of ambulatory care and, and, and providing more services in the community and not having to have people travel. So, of course, that's going to have a big impact on reducing carbon, carbon emissions. So, you know, if they, you know, if healthcare organizations adopt these basic practices, uh, and we'll explore these further in the cluster in more detail, uh, for sure, and looking at the business case, particularly of decarbonization. And if they hold this as a core value, they can really make a significant uh, difference to the global effort in reducing you know, carbon emissions. We have standards or, or, or targets uh, that we're trying to achieve by 2030. Uh, that's gonna really require you know, all the healthcare organizations to come together and, and really support this and, and really advocate for that. And, and I think healthcare organizations, you know, once they start to kind of uh, look at some of these low-hanging fruit that we just talked about, some of these some of these things to implement don't cost a lot of money and can have a very quick return on on the um, on, on you know on in, in budget as a as a as a cost savings and net revenue generation. So that's a it's a it's a pretty interesting perspective that sometimes financial people, particularly CFOs, get concerned. Say, oh, this is going to cost us a lot of money, and we're going to divert our resources and our energies from patient care to doing this and that's not that's not really the case in fact we find that patients really are quite a, uh, big advocates of this as, as well as staff and then when the community finds out they're they're usually quite on board with this as well what are some of those financial benefits i mean you've been working with these organizations now for some time and Yes, we're doing a lot here to help the environment, but also the the financial benefits uh, can be huge for these healthcare organizations, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you start to looking at the supply chain of what what people are buying, do we really need to, you know, buy some of the things that we're buying? Uh, can there be other alternatives that can be used? Again, sort of looking at 
from a departmental perspective and an organizational perspective of what do you really need to buy? What do you really need? You find that there's a lot of waste in the system mm. um, that's going to also contribute to, you know, more power, more energy, all these different types of things. And they do have that. I mean, we have some calculations and some fancy things that we'll, we'll look at um, in the cluster that kind of uh organizations can kind of maybe you know bring to the table and say here here's our organization where are some quick ways that we can get some wins you quickly this goes to the bottom line and we see that that organizations can can start to see this from you know even looking at like purchasing medical gases and things like that we could see some significant savings right away um the the energy utilization component is huge in terms of waste you know, by turning off uh, lights. I mean, you, you think that they don't matter, but they, but these things all add up, particularly when you're looking at large healthcare systems. They all kind of have that cumulative impact. And then you right. start to see, wow, we didn't know we were going to be saving, you know, millions mm-hmm. of dollars. And then, wow, that the CFOs are very happy when they start to see this. And CEOs like, wow, we didn't know we were going to make such a big impact as it relates to cost savings. And that translates to dollars that can be used more effectively than to patient care and other outreach and community-related activities. Okay, so as we do each and every time we have an ACHE member on the podcast as we wrap this conversation up, we like to ask you how the organization has impacted your own journey. How has ACHE helped you along your career? Well, ACHE has been really instrumental. Um, one of the things that I've really appreciated is the uh, is the great network um, and the and the help, particularly when we're looking at disasters and crisis. I remember both from as a researcher and also as a you know as a clinician, uh, getting that support from individuals when you start to reach out and say, okay, what where were some of the examples where uh, you've been successful in uh, managing crisis? So there, you know, we've had CEOs that we've talked to in in Houston, for example, that had flooding, and how did they actually mitigate those circumstances? You know. And, there's people like, for example, Jonathan Burroughs, uh, who's been really instrumental, learning a lot from from him as a thought leader. I've really appreciated that. You know, I co-teach and learn a lot from, you know, ACHE governors, uh, particularly have worked in the past now with uh, with Dr. Mike Mayo. He's he's just up the road from me up in Jacksonville, but quite a ways up the road. But but he's he's always been a good support in terms of bouncing off ideas. Uh, particularly in you know in disaster and crisis uh, setting, uh, since we are uh, always faced with hurricanes, this is a this is a real threat, and and being able to learn about how how these types of things can be applied across the country uh, in different settings have been really um, uh, I've learned a lot from ACHE members and and leaders from that perspective. So it's it's been great to see you know, more and more leaders embracing disaster preparedness and, and response as a result of that. So uh, that's just one way that the organization has helped me in my career, uh, making these great connections and and being able to uh, take advantage of the, all the learning opportunities uh, that are afforded through the organization is great. Well, Dr. Hurtalande, we appreciate you taking some time with us today. Thank you so much for all of your insights and perspectives. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. And remember, you can hear Dr. Hurtalendi at ACHE's New York City Cluster, which will take place August 7th through the 10th. And to learn more and register, you can visit ACHE.org slash New York. That's going to do it for this episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast from ACHE. We thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ACHE.org. Thank you.